on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. And I'll pray. Lord Jesus, I again thank you for all that you have done to pay for our sin, and that it has been completely paid for, that we have been washed clean by the blood of Jesus. Thank you that you have given us your very righteousness and that you see us as being righteous, the righteousness of God. And yet we sin. And Lord, I pray that as we look at your word together, that we'd be encouraged and admonished and strengthened and challenged God to relate to one another as we should, as you would have in view of our sins. In Christ's name, amen. May be seated. Well, as I mentioned last week um, in Bible school, when I teach um, through Matthew, I just spend one hour on all of Matthew 18. And here I'm dividing it up into three Sundays. I'm sorry to do that to you, but um, there's a lot here. And this passage clearly is about confronting your brother when he sins. It reminds me of the little poem. And um, in saying this, um, our Bible school secretary registrar, if you come into her office and sit down, you have to say a poem, and then she gives you a piece of candy. So I am expecting a piece of candy, Lizzie, on Monday. (laughs) To live with saints in heaven above, that will be glory. To live with the saints on earth below, well, that's another story. It is hard. We sin, and we sin frequently against one another. Um, Patsy and I, on occasion, um, do some premarital counseling. We've counseled um, a couple of couples recently. And one thing that I always tell them, the key to a very strong, happy, successful marriage is confront all the sin that you see in the life of your spouse. We don't say that. (laughs) If that were true, then uh, you would know to be praying for Patsy. (laughs) Um, This is a very hard, difficult subject, and I've spent so much time um, thinking on it, praying about it, studying on it um, over these last couple weeks. And I tell you, I just feel undone. Um, And I've been a little humorous and lighthearted here at the beginning, but... It is just so hard because you can't think through this subject carefully without realizing just how often um, you get it wrong. And I, at this point in my life, um, I can look back over um, much, many times where I've had to confront or where I've been confronted. We live on both sides of that coin. And sometimes it's been really, really good, and other times it has just been really, really bad. And I would like to think that at 65 years old, I've got it down, and that it always goes really well when I confront others, and it always goes really well when I get confronted. That is a lie. (laughs) You would have to confront me about my lying if I said that. Um, It is just a very, very difficult thing. I want to just make, as we work through this passage, we're going to go through the text as I normally do, but but um, 
an introduction to going through the text, just to make some observations here about um, this passage and about confrontation, both giving it and receiving it. Keep in mind that the whole theme of this chapter is childlikeness and humility. And there are, Jesus has said that you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven unless you are converted and become like a child. And then he says the greatest in the kingdom of heaven are the ones who are most like children. And so having said that, it's my thought, and I'm not alone with this, that Jesus is now giving examples of childlikeness, three that he would have us to focus on. And the one we saw last week is, is how a child responds to evil. He sees things black and white. He see, sees things in very um, um, binary terms, is the political correct word today, as being either good or evil, black and white. And that's a good thing. Because as we saw, God himself is light, and God never has moral ambiguity. God is never um, perplexed about what ought to take place in any given situation. There is no moral relativism with God. It is black or it is white. It is good or it is evil. And so it is to be childlike, to be humble, is to be like God. His God is humble. And one of the aspects of that, the first thing that Jesus highlights, is how we see the world and how we view evil. We don't compromise with it. We don't rationalize it. We see it for what it is, and we are drastic with it. Prepare to cut off our hand or pluck out our eye if that's what it would take, though he's speaking metaphorically, not literally. It also means that we, in our dealing with childlike people, we should be very cautious and careful because their angels stand before God in heaven. And we should not just rush in and, um, or, or despise um, when dealing with children, a childlike person. And so now he moves into the next aspect of childlikeness, and it's, again, two sides here. One is um, receiving the correction, and the other is giving the correction or the confrontation over sin. And on the receiving side, humility is expressed, childlikeness is expressed, is that when someone comes to us and confronts us over sin in our lives, we are quick to listen. We don't bow up. We don't say, you don't know what you're talking about. That person should never have to say, do I really need to get more people involved? A childlike, humble person doesn't need to have the mom say, just wait till your dad gets home. But that child will say, it's enough that mom has told me, stop. She doesn't need to get bigger and get dad involved. And a childlike Christian should be quick and ready to respond when confronted corrected over his sin. On the other side of the coin, when you're doing the correction, you need to understand that it can be done in pride to confront a person, but it is not necessarily pride to confront. In fact, it can be pride not to confront. Paul is going to rebuke the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5 because they are tolerating, they are putting up with in their church fellowship 
a man who is sleeping with a stepmother. And Paul says, you're doing this because of arrogance. I, for my part, have already judged him. I've already delivered him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. So Paul looked at the reluctance to confront as being an issue of pride. And so it works both ways. A humble person will respond to confrontation, but a humble person will also confront. We don't usually think of it in those terms, but it takes humility to confront well, and it takes humility to respond to confrontation. Typically, the church uses this passage here, 15 through 20, as a passage on church discipline. However, and I'll make more comments about this. I'm still introducing. There's going to be a long introduction here. Um, the church had not yet been formed when Jesus spoke these words. So either he is speaking prophetically of what will be, and that would certainly be true, but I believe he's also speaking not prophetically, but he's speaking to the people standing around him, these disciples. The word here, literally in the Greek, is not translated church. It's translated assembly, ecclesia. It's assembly. And the people that Jesus was speaking to would not have understood something that was coming in the future. They would have understood that Jesus is speaking to them, to that assembly, that assembly of disciples, in particular the 12, maybe by extension the larger group of disciples who followed him. But for sure, those 12 men would have understood he's talking to them when he says, take it to the assembly, the assembly being those 12 disciples. The point is, these guidelines that Jesus is, are giving should not be just viewed as for the organized church. They are for individual Christians, and they are telling us how individual Christians should deal with sin in another Christian's life that you are part of an assembly with. Or Christians in relationship with you. How to be involved in their life. You are already in a relationship with them. They are part of your assembly of Christians. How do you talk to them when it comes to sin? I want to say that this passage, I don't believe, is an absolute formula on how to handle all confrontation. There are no formulas for relationships. We all know that. No two people are the same. No two relationships are the same. And so there are some, some general principles, but there are no absolute formulas. There are steps that we should take in confronting sin, but these steps are not absolute. For example, Jesus... And Paul both rebuked Peter. I feel sorry for Peter. <laughs> That's recorded for eternity that he, he got kind of slammed pretty hard twice, very publicly. When Jesus publicly rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, he did not go to him in private first. And when Paul publicly conf confronted Peter over his hypocrisy with the Galatian church, he did not go to him privately. And when Paul spoke of the man in 1 Corinthians 5 that I've already made reference to, Paul said nothing about going to him privately. 
that tells me that these steps here in Matthew 18, 15 to 20 are general principles of how confrontation should be handled. But they are not formulas. It is not an absolute that will always be applicable to every circumstance. There are steps that we should take in confronting sin. But there is also no guaranteed outcome. Just because we do things as outlined here in this paragraph doesn't mean that it will turn out well. Why do we need this passage? Largely because of two things. One, the deceitfulness of sin. The deceitfulness of sin necessitates confrontation for sin. Sin deceives a person into thinking he isn't sinning or that his sin is not that big a deal. The deceitfulness of sin. And sometimes it takes another person to step up to us and say, this is sin, or you know this is sin, but you're minimizing it. Sin is deceitful. And because of that, require, it is often required, necessary, that it, be pub, that it be confronted by another person. Also, the destructiveness of sin necessitates confrontation. Sin leads to death. Sin spreads to others. And sin deadens the conscience and hardens the heart to correction. So because of the deceitfulness of sin and the destructiveness of sin, confrontation is necessary. Sin is rooted in pride. All sin is rooted in pride. But the humble person will respond to correction, and the humble person will humbly and lovingly confront his brother over his sin. Refusal to, to respond to, confront, to confrontation is pride, and refusal to confront can also be because of pride. Here are some quotes on confronting or correcting a brother who has sinned. Correction is not a nicety. It is a necessity. If our lives veer off course and continue in that direction, it could result in the, in the shipwreck of our faith. God wants every believer to be involved in the ministry of correction. The ministry of correction is essential in the family of God. If you care, you must confront. Confrontation alone is not sufficient. You must also bring restoration and healing through the word. Your goal is to restore. Our responsibility toward our sinning brother is not created by the fact that he has wronged us, but by the fact that he has sinned and harmed himself. It is hard to accept a rebuke. It is even harder to administer one in loving humility. Sin of whatever form is not to be tolerated within the disciple community, but it is to be dealt with when it is noticed. But this is, not, but this is to be done with sensitivity and with a minimum of publicity. Here are some scriptures regarding confrontation. This is not comprehensive um, at all. Romans 6, I'm sorry, Galatians 6 1 tells us, Brethren, if any man is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, 
each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. From James 5.20, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Proverbs 5.11 says, Like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. Proverbs 25.12, Like an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. Proverbs 15.23, A man has joy in an apt answer, and how beautiful is a timely word. And from Proverbs 15.1 and 2, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable. So now let's look at the text. If your brother sins, go to him and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Here's some implications. The confronter has already forgiven his brother. He is not seeking an apology. He is seeking restoration of the brother with God and with his other brothers. We're going to see in the next paragraph where Peter's going to say, how many times should I forgive my brother? And Jesus is going to say 70 times 7. Put those two passages together, and when Jesus says, go to your brother who has sinned, the assumption is you've already forgiven him. I would say be very, very cautious about going to your brother if you've not forgiven him already. Chances are it's not going to go well. And you don't go looking for an apology. If you've already forgiven him, you don't need an apology. You're going for his sake because you're concerned about how his sin is impacting him and his relationship with God. If you'll note perhaps in your Bible where it says, and if your brother sins at the end of the word sins, there might be a little number one. And if you look in the margin... If you have a good study Bible, it will say many manuscripts here add sins against you. Well, that's kind of a significant addition. If your brother sins, go to him. That's a little different than if your brother sins against you, go to him. Would you agree? That's a pretty big difference. So where are the translations on this? If your brother sins against you, King James Version, New King James Version, and the ESV Bible. Okay? If your brother sins, period. New American Standard Bible, the NET Bible, and the NIV Bible. So that's a pretty broad spectrum. It's pretty evenly split. About half are on one side, half are on the other. The reason for the problem here is because, as it says in the text, many, um, it, it says, um, most ancient, I'm looking at the wrong verse now, 15. 
Um, many manuscripts add. Well, those many manuscripts, there's two different forms. I don't want to get too technical here. But there's basically two different Greek textual um, schools of thought. One is called the majority view. And that would line up with the King James Bible and the New King James Bible. Their view is that you, if you don't know which reading is right between the manuscripts, you take the reading that is most common among the manuscripts. That's the majority view. But most Bibles that we have today don't take that view. They take the view that the oldest manuscripts are the best, and you should always put the weight of evidence on the oldest manuscripts. That's what the New American Standard does, and the oldest manuscripts don't have against you. It just says sins, period. So what do you do? Well, look at what Peter thought. Verse 11. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often, shall I sit, how often shall my brother sin against me? So to me, this is pretty conclusive evidence that even though the oldest manuscripts don't say against you, Peter, who's standing there listening to Jesus, understands that Jesus is talking about when your brother sins against you. Go to him. So then... And I want to leave that too quickly. I'm, I'm telling you, all through this, I hope if you hear anything that I'm trying to point us to God's wisdom and dependence upon Him. Because this is so difficult. No two people are the same. No two relationships are the same. And it, it, it is just a difficult, difficult subject. And we truly need God's mind and God's wisdom with this. So am I to confront any and all sin that I see, is that what Jesus is saying? Am I to confront any and all sin against me? Either way you take it, it can seem huge. Then there's the question of, who is my brother if your brother sins? Well, who is my brother? Well, that's... Um, question that Jesus settled very definitively, and he said, basically, it's anybody that you're in relationship with. Okay, that does help. So, just because I hear, maybe some preacher, you know, I hear about, and there's sin in his life, and I have never met the man, I've never heard about the man, is it my place, even though I, can, I, am, I am reasonably sure that it is absolutely true, that man has huge sin in his life? Should I pick up the phone and call him? Should I drive over to his church and say, we need to have a meeting? When I have no relationship with the guy. Maybe, but I think probably unlikely. My brother, when he sins... I think this is implying, it's presupposing a relationship. I believe that when Jesus said this, the disciples probably said, heard Jesus saying, because Jesus is looking at 12 men and says, when your brother sins, what would they have thought? He's talking about us. When we sin, one of us should go to him and say something about it. 
relationship. When you go to your brother, go first in private. Face-to-face is best. Unless, again, this is not absolute. Face-to-face is typically best. But not always. If it's a man who needs to confront a woman, face-to-face alone is not best. That is not best. If the person who has sinned has power over the one who has been sinned against, face-to-face may be very bad. It might not be safe for that person to meet alone with them. I'm not trying to undermine what Jesus is saying. God forbid. This is very serious things, and Jesus is saying, go. But I understand through, I I trust the whole counsel of God's word, and certainly by my own experience, it is not always the best thing, the right thing, to go alone to a person face to face. Most of the time, it is, but not always. Reproof should be handled with extreme caution, I would add, when dealing with an older person. I appreciate how I was raised, and it was in a time when children respected adults. We've lost a lot. A child would have never raised his voice at any adult, would have never confronted any adult. I did once when I was in the fifth grade. I remember it vividly. Substitute teacher, we didn't like substitute teachers. We really liked our regular teacher. And this substitute teacher came in that we all kind of thought was a bit of a hag in our fifth grade minds, and out of the blue, she started yelling, and back in the day, teachers yelled. And they even spanked, or took you down to the principal to get spanked. And all the parents would say, amen, the kid deserved it. He'll get it at home when he comes home. It's different day to day. So she felt very justified to be yelling at my best friend sitting next to me, accusing him falsely of throwing an eraser across the room and hitting another kid. Well, I'm Mr. Justice, fifth grade, 10 years old, and this is an injustice. And I stood up, and I pointed my finger at that woman, and I said, he did not throw that eraser. I'm sitting right next to him, and I would have seen it. And I thought she was going to have a heart attack. That woman, man, you could just see the blood pressure. Her face turns red. And I'm standing there, and I'm just doing this, and she just explodes on me. But I was right. But Then my friend started tugging on my shirt. And he said, Charlie, I did throw the eraser. (laughs) Oh, my word. It's amazing I'm still alive today. We should use extreme caution 
when dealing with people who are older than we are. That still applies to me today. The assumption in this passage seems to be of a peer relationship, brother to brother. Doesn't mean you can't confront an older person, but do not forget it is not a peer relationship. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. The inference to that seems to be that the whole purpose of going was to see your brother restored, turned from his sin, restored to the relationship with God and restored to relationship with you. Again, it was never about you if you're the confronter. It's about him and his relationship with God and with you. Verse 16 says, if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If these witnesses can be eyewitnesses, they should be your first choice. But sometimes, maybe often, there is no other eyewitness to what has happened between you and a brother. Then take two people who will be humble enough and mature enough that they can witness your conversation. That will help keep you from getting too heated, and it will help the other person see the seriousness of this. So they aren't there to gang up on the person. They are there to just help witness how that one who has sinned is responding to the confrontation. And to be able to verify that there was no response, that that is in fact the case, and then it needs to be taken to the next level. It should be done in great humility and gentleness. And again, the purpose is for restoration. We should not rush into this. It should not be eager. It should not just be because of personal indignation, but because we care about our brother. It says in verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, the them implies that they are not necessarily all talking, but they're all on the same page. They're not necessarily all eyewitnesses to what happened, but they are of one mind, that this is sin, and this cannot continue. It needs to stop. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. So I've said the church is literally the assembly of believers that you're in association with. The body of Christ had not yet been formed, and the disciples would have understood the assembly to be themselves. This admonition obviously applies to the local church, but Jesus was not necessarily speaking of a formal organization with hierarchy of authority. He was speaking of relationships among Christians who are in regular interaction with each other. Individual believers, I think what Jesus is saying, have the authority to confront each other when they are in relationship with each other. 
Believers in relationship with each other are expected to collectively respond to sin among themselves. Does that mean that you should not go to the pastors or elders? No. But we shouldn't just put this on the pastors and elders. That happens sometimes when it, we go to the elders, we go to the pastors, when we have not been willing to go ourselves to that person or to take some people who also are in relationship with that person. And we ramp it up beyond what it needs to be. I've seen at His Hill over the years that when dealing with student discipline, I try to stay in the background and to be the last resort as much as possible. It's better for the student if I am the last resort and not the first resort. It's so much better for the student. And so the student may come to me and say, Charlie, this is going on. This person's done this to me. If I remember and don't just rush in because, again, I'm a high justice and I see injustice, my first instinct is to go and rush in when people tell me there's a problem. But if I clear my head and listen to the Lord, I typically hear him say, tell that person, go to his roommate and talk to him. And if that doesn't work, get the other roommates to have a conversation with him. And if that doesn't work, maybe bring your discipleship group leader in. And if it has to finally come to me, we're talking major problems. And so again, we don't want to just jump to the last resort and make the last resort the first resort. That's not fair to anybody. It's not charitable. It's not gracious. In fact, it's passing the buck. It's being irresponsible. Jesus says, you go to your brother. That should be the first step. I've been confronted over various things. I remember my first summer working at His Hill. Um, I almost got fired. Uh, my attitude was, was worse than bad. It was atrocious. And they told me one more negative word, and we're going to put you on a bus and send you back to Corpus. It was bad. You know what was the most effective confrontation I had that summer? Did not come from the camp director or the ministry director. It came from another counselor, one of my peers. I was blowing off steam and, you know, letting everybody see my bad attitude again. I was alone in a car with another counselor venting because I knew he could identify. And my friend, my peer, looked at me and said, your attitude stinks. That was much more effective than anything any person in authority could have said to me. Jesus knows why he's saying, go to your brother. You think that the heavy hand of the church eldership would be most effective. It's unlikely more likely your personal relationship would be more effective. If they don't listen to you, let them be as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. Well, that's pretty harsh. Just write them off. Think ahead. Next paragraph. If your brother sins against you 70 times, seven times, forgive him. 
So we're going to see there's no point that comes when you write them off. So Jesus is not saying treating somebody as a Gentile or a tax gatherer is washing your hands of them and just walking away. How many Gentiles and tax gatherers was Jesus in regular association with? Lots. I mean, they felt very comfortable coming to him. He was having dinner in the homes of tax gatherers. So I think that we stretch it way too far when in this passage we make this about excommunication, severing the relationship. There's a place, according to 1 Corinthians, where we kick a person out of a church. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. It seems to be Jesus is simply saying, when you've gone through these steps of trying to confront your brother and he get, you get nothing but stone walls, he will not listen to you. There comes a point when the relationship with that brother needs to change. It's not going to be what it used to be because of the sin in his life and his refusal to acknowledge it. The relationship needs to change. It doesn't mean the relationship comes to an end. Theologically, think about what it says. If a person comes to a place in his sin where you say, we're done, the relationship is over. It is severed. Theologically, if you apply that to relationship with God, what have you just said? You can get to a point in your sin with God where God washes his hands of you. It's over. You've lost your salvation. So if we don't believe, and in this church we don't believe, that you can lose your salvation, no matter how much you sin, the sin has been paid for by Jesus Christ. And you will not lose your salvation. That needs to be applied in our dealings with one another. You can hurt, you can damage relationships because of sin. But it should not be possible in the body of Christ to destroy a relationship because of sin any more than our sin destroys our relationship with God. Hurt it? Damage it? Yes. Destroy it? No. You can tell I've been thinking a lot about it. i got all these pages of notes typewritten here, and I'm just struggling with how much to say. I'm kind of putting on you everything I've been working through, and maybe it's too much. Some problems that come out of this is should we confront immediately every time we are sinned against or see sin? I'm reminded of 1 Peter 3, 1-2, where Peter writes about the wife whose husband is not responding to the Lord. And Peter does not say, just keep going after him. Nag, 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 nag. Get him to respond. Peter says, shut your mouth. Paraphrase. Be silent. Submit. And by your godly, godly and chaste behavior, your husband will be one. It is not always best to speak. Again, we're in the area where it takes great wisdom. It takes the Spirit of God. Does this mean that a wife should never speak? Absolutely not. But there are times when we need to be silent. It doesn't work well when we confront family over all their sin. Every negative word, every ungrateful remark, every irritable attitude. Really? Does that work for any of us? 
It is hard for me to imagine that Jesus confronted all the sin that he saw in the lives of his disciples and his family. I think, without trying to be too flippant, he would have been crucified a lot sooner. Should we confront all sin that we see in others? Yes, all sin leads to death. And to deliver from sin is to deliver from death. We are exhorted to restore one who is caught in a trespass. Clearly, God exhorts us to go. Go to that person. Clearly, God uses people to convict. Clearly, the health of the body of Christ is vitally important. But we should not think that personal confrontation by us is the only way that God convicts. God also uses the preaching of His Word the reading of His Word, our continued love and grace, and the direct ministry of the Holy Spirit to convict. My family had a broken relationship that was very, very grievous to us. I won't go into the details of it, but it was a person that we loved dearly had been ripped out of our lives. And it was not possible to see the relationship restored. And it was especially very, very painful to my mom. She suffered more from that alienation than, than the rest of us combined. And there is nothing, nothing we could do to change it. The one who caused the problem, though, several years went by, and he was sitting in church listening to someone um, share a testimony wasn't even the preached word. It was just a testimony that was being shared. And he got, had nothing to do with this other situation, but he got so convicted, and God applied that to what he had caused to happen in our family. And he said, we need to make this right. Praise God. God says, Go. But timing is important. You can do the right thing for the right reasons at the wrong time. And it is sin. We had a couple that had been with us on staff. And um, I didn't renew their, their employment. Um, didn't feel that we could keep them. And so I let them go. Very difficult decision. And they were very embittered by that. The next time I saw them was at a funeral where the wife's dad had died. And I so much wanted things to be right with them. And, um, and I didn't want their hearts to be destroyed by bitterness. I didn't know when I would see them again. And when the funeral was over, I walked up to them and said, I really wish we could talk about our problem. It was the wrong time. It just made it worse. And they told me so. Right heart, right thing, right reasons, wrong time. The manner that we confront is so important. 
We can do the right thing for the right reasons at the right time, but in the wrong way. And it is sin. It can be too public. It can be too soon. It can be too angry. It can be without all the information that we need. The Spirit's leading and dependence upon Him is absolutely important. The right thing in the right way at the right time for the right reasons, but without the Spirit's leading and enabling is flesh. And it is sin. Jesus says, go. I have to assume that He means go in Christ, following Christ, and not simply because he says go. I hope I'm not being heretical here. Listen to the Lord. And there are going to be times when Jesus is saying, yes, go, but not right now. Not the way that you're going. You're going to go in anger. Don't go. You need to slow down. Go, but give it 24 hours till you calm down. Jesus says go, but we must go in Christ and not in our flesh. We were down in Mexico years ago. I was, did the math on this last night as I was thinking about it again. I was 24 years old, and I was heading up a trip to Mexico. We were down in the interior, two or 300 miles inside Mexico, and we had given lots of instructions to our students about how to conduct themselves when they were away from the campgrounds that we were going to be staying at and working on. So when we were in the village, certain way to behave, certain way to dress, and this is back, you know, um, what, 40 years ago now, and, um, and Mexico was different, and the interior was very, very conservative. And so we really gave lots of guidelines to our girls. You're not to be just alone walking through the village. You are to not dress even with blue jeans. Put a skirt on, just a conservative blue jean skirt. And have one of the guys with you. One girl um, didn't hear any of that. She went, didn't go through our orientation. And she walked up in the town square with a tight red dress on. Worst thing you could do. And then she's trying to buy a soda from a woman at a little vending cart a little store, and um, open-air store, and she gave the woman, I think, a 5 or $10 bill. This woman doesn't have American money to change it with, and she didn't even have enough money in the store to make the change. And so she said something in Spanish to this girl, and, the girl, and then she walked off, and the girl just assumed she's robbing me. And so when the lady came back with the change, she didn't realize that she came back with change and this girl just flipped out and threw her Coke in the, girl, in the lady's face and then walked off. Well, the lady called the police. Got huge. An actual riot. I thought this was a village just of 100 people. No. Hundreds of people. went. I, and we, I couldn't even hear the girl screaming. But the padded van, police van, showed up with six cops. And they were trying to throw this girl in the back of the van. Happened right next to the bank where we had been doing our business. And so all the banker men came out. And, and they knew, they could tell, oh, she's one of the, his hill girls. 
and she was staying out there at that camp. And so they helped the girl and got between the cops and her, but all, hundreds of people come running because she's screaming, and she's beating up six cops. And they all wanted to see the show. And so we could barely get through the traffic. I'm in the pickup trucks. We finally get her in. These bankers came in and helped get her in the cab of the truck and helped us get back to the camp. Well, you can imagine I was a little upset. And so I had some firm, not loud, but firm choice words for her. Because we were all frightened. And then I got out of the truck, and she was still in the truck with two other students. And while I was gone, they laid into her some more. It was too much. It was too much. One thing for one person, but see, this is one of the things when we confront people. We've got no idea how many other people have already confronted it. Maybe we have no idea of all the other stuff that's going on in their lives. And maybe this thing that we're seeing is so insignificant in comparison to everything else going on in their lives. What I'm getting at is people are sometimes are much more fragile than we think. We need to be so careful. Jesus says, go, but go with gentleness. People are fragile. Sometimes the strongest among us are not nearly as strong as you think and just takes that one more thing, that one more disapproval, because that's what it feels like, to put them over the edge and just say, I'm done. Be gentle. Jesus speaks about whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth is bound is loosed in, in heaven. The point being, we should be in absolute agreement with heaven. Know the mind of God. Our mind, our thinking is not what's important here. It's God's mind and God's thinking. Make sure you have his mind. And then, so that goes for the confronter. Make sure you have the mind of God. Make sure that heaven is in agreement with what you're doing. But for the one that is being confronted, I think it's a very powerful word here in saying when your brother comes to you and you blow him off, and you get two or three more brothers that come to you and you blow them off, and then you go, it has to be taken before the church, and you dismiss what the church is being said? Don't think for a minute that you can just say, well, I know what God thinks, and just write off all the people that you are in relationship with. That is the height of pride and arrogance. If your brother and your brothers and your assembly are all talking to you about the same thing God is talking to you. Jesus is in their midst talking to you, is what Jesus is saying in this passage. This is not about prayer meetings. This is about confrontation. So let me wrap it up. You've been patient. When you are confronted, the best response is, listen. Not defensiveness not retaliation, listen. Take it to Jesus before you respond with defensiveness. Apologize immediately for causing the other to take offense. Apologize for what you did. Ask for forgiveness. But again, even with this, there is no biblical formula. 
So if you're on the, on the side of receiving the apology, show some grace. There is no place in the Bible that defines what an apology consists of. But understand their heart. They're trying to say, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Would you please forgive me? And they may not have used any of those words. But you can see what the heart is. Appreciate the risk that that person is taking when they come to you. It is a great risk. Value that. It says something, should say something for their heart for you and their love for you that they would confront you. Hear the person's heart. Believe the best about their intentions. Be humble and teachable in response to what they're saying. And if the accusation has no merit, well, then just let it go. Proverbs says, a curse without a cause does not alight. It doesn't even settle. When you are doing the confronting, be humble. You aren't God. You don't have all the facts. Good people sin. Don't make this a character issue. Don't make it bigger, more than what it is. Be gentle. I remember being confronted by the director at His Hill once when I was an intern. So gentle, so loving, so kind. And after he'd finished talking to me, he was so gentle he needed to say to me, and I'm so glad he did, he got close to me, almost nose to nose, and he says, consider yourself chewed out. <laughs> and I'm thinking, if that was a chewing out, wow. But I'm so glad, he, 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 it was so gentle, he needed to tell me, Charlie, I just chewed you out. <laughs> oh, good. You know, I, I, and so I took it to heart. I, but, he, but be gentle, be hopeful, be redemptive. Be gracious, be cautious. Take the log out of your own eye first. And don't assume that people are stronger than what they might be. Assume fragility, not hardness. If you are justice-oriented or perfectionistic, I'm both of those things, take special care. Confrontation assumes that you have already forgiven the person. The purpose is not an apology, but restoration of a relationship in a soul. Make sure it's sin. All sin is sin, but there are sins of omission and sins of commission. There are sins where you purposely went out and did it, and you don't care the consequences. And there are sins that are omission, just sins of neglect wasn't even purposeful. There are intentional and unintentional sins. It's not all the same. Have discernment to know what to let go. Learn to not take offense over every little slight that takes place. Don't let it be about you, but about your brother. And again, I believe timing is important. Be sensitive to all that might be going on in a person's heart, in a person's life. Give God time to work, not trying to, to, to be irresponsible and, and to look for an excuse not to confront, but give God time. Believe that God is at work, even when you can't see that he's at work. 
Was God at work in David's heart when he sinned with Bathsheba? Absolutely. Did anybody see it? No. But somewhere between 9 and 12 months after the sin, God said to Nathan, go talk to the guy. And David was ready. And he was broken and convicted over his sin. Don't use that need for timing to be an excuse to avoid the clear command of this passage. Go to your brother. The well-being of your brother is at stake, and his fellowship with God and God's people is at stake. It is important. So I've tried in the course of this long message to try to be true to what Jesus is saying here. It is vitally important to go to your brother when he sins. Especially when he sins against you. I believe it is also vitally important to make sure you go in the Spirit. That you have Christ. That you are moving forward as he would have you. When he would have you. With his mind. And it's not about you. It's about the other person. It's not about seeking an apology. It's not about trying to get a wrong corrected. You want their best. You want them to turn from something that is damaging their souls and damaging the relationships with their end. And that is always a good thing. I'll close this in prayer. Lord Jesus, if there is any subject where we need your wisdom and your mind, your very spirit, God, it is on this. And we wouldn't be passive or tolerant or complacent about sin when you hate it. We'd pray that what stirs your heart would stir ours. But I, God, you know our tendency to, to misplace, to misinterpret passion and conviction and stirring and emotion for your spirit, when many times it is not, it is our flesh. You know, God, the difference, and you are more than able and willing to show us the difference. And I pray that we would be faithful and responsible, loving and humble to confront in obedience to your word. That we would be humble enough to receive the confrontation when it comes but that we would, Lord, be filled with your spirit and move at your unction and not in just the emotions of our flesh. You are adequate for this, Lord Jesus. Use us, O oh God, to be redemptive, to give healing, to give strength to those who are sinning and who are wayward that we would not crush, that we wouldn't write people off, that we would be hopeful, that we would move forward in love, grace, and humility, and that you would be exalted, Lord Jesus. In Christ's name, amen.